So uh, welcome. Hey, we're just going to continue uh, in our series called The Unexpected uh, King. And uh, as we put this series uh, together, uh, we really kind of started with the end in mind. So we started with um, Mark 16, and that's about the resurrection. And we wanted that message to be on Easter Sunday. And then we just kind of backed up uh, from there. So the last several weeks, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, we have uh, seen Jesus uh, enter in to uh, Jerusalem. So on March 8th, uh, that was what we celebrate as Palms uh, Sunday, uh, which is actually this weekend. So we covered that like on March 8th. And on March 15th, uh, obviously, uh, we and all the other churches in the world, we focused on what was happening in our world with COVID-19. Then on March the 22nd, uh, I came back and I talked about the prediction of the king. We went to uh, Mark 13. And then last week, uh, Pastor Charles did this awesome message of, about the king's banquet. And when um, Jesus celebrated what we call the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion, um, he, he was talking about, in Jesus's perspective, it was about his blood was the blood that initiated the new covenant, sealed the new covenant. If you haven't heard that talk, you should go back and listen uh, to that talk. And then uh, after Jesus celebrated that banquet with his uh, men in the upper room, they sing a hymn and they uh, walk across uh, this little valley to the Mount of Olives. And as they're going to the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him three different times. And Peter, of course, insists, oh, no, no way, that's never going to happen. And then after that, uh, then uh, we see that he goes to the Gethsemane, the garden, and he tries to get his, his men to pray with him. But they're too tired. Nobody prays with him. And then uh, we hear uh, on the paths of the garden of Gethsemane the, the footsteps of the soldiers from the temple, temple guard, led by Judas. Judas betrays Jesus, and then Jesus is arrested. And then he goes to trial, and we really get to the climax of the Gospel of Mark. And the climax of the Gospel of Mark is when Jesus dies a slow horrible death on a cross. Now, in our world, when I say the word cross, uh, we probably think of, uh, of this uh, symbol. I'm sure if you look around your home right now, you probably have this symbol in your home or someone has a piece of jewelry on uh, that you know, is a cross. I mean, it's everywhere. In the building that I'm in uh, right now, we have a cross on the steeple. In our world, the cross has become a very important and very powerful symbol of our faith. There's nothing wrong with having a cross uh, hanging around our neck or dangling from our ears. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But here's the deal. In today's talk, what I'm going to do is connect that symbol to what really happened historically. Because in the days of Jesus, no one was going around singing about how they cherish the old rugged cross. Nobody cherished 
the cross in Jesus' day, when they saw a cross, they'd, sh <laughs> they'd shudder with fear. It would be like um, someone coming into your house today and seeing a, a nice portrait of an electric chair that's used in prisons to execute people. No, I'd have never been in a home that had electric chair. I've never seen an electric chair hanging around someone's neck or dangling from there. You've never seen that, never seen that. To us, the cross is a symbol, but to the people in Jesus' day, uh, uh, it, was, it was a Roman torture device. Crosses didn't start appearing in Christian art until everybody who'd seen a real one had died off. So heads up, parents. Uh, as Tiffany said, we're trying to give you some space here. Um, I'm going to be talking about crucifixion today. And it's a violent topic. I'd say the message is rated PG, um, but it's about the crucifixion. So take your Bibles and uh, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, you're going to need a Bible. Uh, if you uh, just grab a YouTube version or use one of your devices to find, I'm using the 2011 NIV uh, version, so you might want to just have a paper Bible like this, but um, <laughs> grab a Bible uh, someplace and uh, open it up. I'm going to be reading a lot of verses uh, today. Here we go. Continuing the narrative as Jesus has led into the first of two kind of a false or mock trials. Mark 14, verse 53. They, that would be these uh, temple guards, took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up and before them asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained Silent, gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest Tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. 
Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now let's just stop right there. So Mark is doing something right here. And if we were reading the Gospel of Mark in one sitting, we would pick it up. But because we haven't been doing that, it's hard for us to actually see. You see, Mark is establishing in this gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. So we see that in the very first verse of the book of Mark, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark tells us right away at the beginning, this is what the book is about. And all through the book, what we have seen all through the book is this. He's misunderstood. He's the unexpected Messiah. No one gets like who he, who he really is. Everyone misunderstands. And now, for the first time in the book, we have the very absolute clearest words from Jesus that he actually is the Messiah. It's crystal clear. Let's go back and see what he says. The, um, the chief priest says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of heaven. Crystal clear, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And the reader would pick this up. Oh my gosh. Now Jesus is very clear right here. And when he makes a clear statement as to who he is, how do the Jewish people respond? Yes, you see, they mock him. We see that in verse 65. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. I've never been beaten. I've never been blindfolded. I've never been beaten with rods. Could you just imagine? You just imagine. So the narrative keeps going, and we see that the predictions that Jesus made about Peter come true. He does deny him. And then we pick up another trial in Mark 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief, let me stop for just a second. What, what, what day would this be? What day would this be? Can you answer? I, I can't hear you. Oh, I can't hear you because you're not in the room. <laughs> so what, 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 day, what day is it? So if the Lord's Supper is on Thursday, this would be what? This would be yes. And in Christian tradition, what do we call this Friday? We call it, yeah, that's right, Good Friday. Let's go back. 15.1. Very early in the morning, it's Good Friday, the chief priests and the, with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. 
And Pilate was amazed. What's the first question that Pilate asked Jesus? You see that in verse 2? Are you the king of the Jews? In this narrative, Mark draws special attention to the fact that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And we'll see this over and over again. The Jews had no authority to kill him, so they have to hand him over to Pilate. And Pilate interrogates him. It's kind of a false trial. And then Pilate, being the politician, uh, kind of uh, appeals to a tradition that they have in Jerusalem that at every Passover, uh, he asks the crowd like who they would like to have um, him give over to them, some criminal. And then we see this scene that the crowd cries out, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And then Pilate says, well, what do you want me to do with this guy? And then the same people who on Palm Sunday said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those same people say repeatedly, what do they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. So then we read verse 15. One thing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. What does it mean to be flogged? Here's an illustration taken from um, the March 21st, 1986 edition of the Journal for the American Medical Association. And you can see this uh, flogging post, and then there is a naked victim there, and they used... Um, this like a whip, it's a wooden handle, and then these leather thongs, and then small pieces of bone or metal balls would be on this flagrum. And then a Roman soldier then would, well, you get the idea. Many people didn't actually survive the flogging. But Jesus survives it. And we continue to read. Verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. This is a cohort, so they could be as large as 600. I mean, it's lots and lots of people. They put a purple robe on him then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with the staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Then they let him out to crucify him. This is all mockery. Just a whole company of people just mocking you, spitting on you, beating you. Jesus, at this point, barely able to walk. So the narrative continues. Verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, 
the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. None of the Gospels describe the crucifixion. They all just mention it briefly. Matthew, they had him crucified. Mark, and they crucified him. Luke 23, they crucified him there. John, there, they crucified him. Why don't the gospel writers explain a crucifixion? The obvious answer, because everyone they're writing to has seen a crucifixion before. Everyone. You don't have to describe it. If you saw a man being tortured to death, you would never forget that. The Persians started uh, crucifixions, and then the Romans picked it up from them, and they perfected the art. And it was a cruel, torturous device. Roman historians uh, tell us that there were different kinds of crosses. We read uh, from Seneca, I see crosses there, not just of one kind, but fashioned in many different ways. Some have their victims with head down toward the ground. Some impale their private parts. Others stretch out their arms on a, on a cross beam. So there's crosses that look like a T, and then there's crosses that just look like, like a plus sign, and then there were crosses that looked like an X. They had different kinds of crosses. One of the things the Romans liked to do, though, uh, especially in Judea, was to humiliate the, the victim in front of their friends and family so that they would strip them naked. You can see uh, Mark mentions this. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. John uh, talks more about the fact that all these, he's, he's crucified naked. One commentator, Craig Keener, uh, writes this. Romans crucified their victims naked. Public nakedness could cause shame in other settings, and Romans stripped those they would punish to degrade them, but it was especially shaming for Palestinian Jews. When your arms are like this and you're naked, you want, you want, to, you want to do this. Victims usually died of suffocation. They would try to breathe. <laughs> and then the narrative continues. Verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on the right and one on his left. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Notice the detail that Mark gives to how the Jews are responding. They are basically saying over and over again, this is a failed Messiah. How do they know that Jesus is not the Messiah? Because the Romans are killing him. And the definition of a Messiah is that you don't let the Romans kill you. You know he's a fake Messiah. You know he's a failed Messiah because there's the proof he is dying. That's the definition of failure. Verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Whoa, stop, stop. Do you see what Mark is doing? Throughout the entire book, Jesus has been misunderstood. Now on the cross, he's clearly crying to God, and he's misunderstood right then. He's not crying to Elijah. He's crying out to God. And how does he do it? He cries this psalm, this powerful psalm. My God, my God, why? forsaken me. This is the human cry. It's the cry of anguish. But it's also, it's also could be a cry of triumph. Pastor Chris, like, how can you say that at all? It's because of what the psalm means. You see, in Jesus' day, all you had to do is say um, the first words of a psalm, and uh, the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, they would have known exactly what you're talking about. It would be like if I said, uh, four score and seven years ago, nobody, none of you would say, oh, that's 87. No, no. If I said four score and seven years ago, you would think, oh, that's like the Gettysburg Address. It's Abraham Lincoln. That's the Civil War. You would know automatically just by the little phrase. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, they would think Psalm 22. What's Psalm 22 about? Well, the first phrase is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's, the, it's, it's the picture of someone who's dying, a horrible death. And then we read, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This was written by David years, years before Jesus died on a cross. 
And then verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And then we see the last verse of Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22 starts with someone who's crying out for their life. And Psalm 22 ends with a picture of the Lord's dominion. Jesus is crying the cry of anguish and pain. But also buried in Psalm 22 is this note of triumph at the end. And what Jesus is doing on the cross is actually triumphant. But it doesn't look that way to everyone around. Everyone around looks and says, hey, he's a failure. He's a failure. But does everyone say that? Continuing, verse 36. Someone ran and filled a sponge with vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when a centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Whoa, whoa, stop, 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 stop. You see see what's happening here? There is one person who said, this is not a failure. It's the centurion. Verse 39, the centurion who stood there in front. This is a Roman centurion. He saw how he died. He said, surely this man is the son of God. All the Jews think he's a total failure. But this Roman, Mark is writing largely to a Roman audience. And he's, he's saying to them, oh my gosh, look. Look at the possibility here. A Roman can see who he really is. And what Mark is doing in a very, this is genius writing, you guys, in a very powerful way, he's circling right back to the first verse. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus dies on a Roman execution rack, a tortuous death. But the question remains, why? The Apostle Paul gives us a hint at why when he writes this. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died. And what does it say there? For our sins. According to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. Christ died because of our sins. Because of our sins. He died because of our sins. And then he says, according to the scriptures. Well, what scriptures? Well, it could have been this passage, Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. He died because of our sins. He died because of our iniquity. God has actually placed the iniquity of everyone who has ever lived on this planet, all of the sins of the world, he placed on Jesus at that moment on the cross. Boom. And Jesus absorbed into himself all of our iniquity. God loves us, but our sin and our iniquity keeps him from moving towards us. And I know that doesn't make sense to people because they go, well, God, can't God, over, oh, he, God can overlook anything, right? Can't he overlook my sin? Oh, no, no, no. Um, uh, iniquity and sin is to God what... Um, it probably makes a lot of sense in COVID-19. Imagine this. Imagine that uh, I'm in my home, and um, all of a sudden, like, you know, today, I would all of a sudden look at my wife, and then I would go, Achoo! and just, just a nasty sneeze all over my hands. It's like, oh, my God, like that. And then I would look at my wife and go, come here, honey. I just want to love you. Now, what would my wife do? She'd go, back, 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 back up like this. Yeah, she wanted part of me. Even though she loves me, it's that mass that keeps me from coming closer to her. She'd want me to clean that. So I'd walk over and maybe get some, you know, some Purell right here and clean it like that and put that on my hands. And then, you know, my wife, she wouldn't be satisfied with that. Actually, she'd say, you wash, wash your hands, like wash your whole body. Then you can come close to me. That's what she'd actually say. The blood of Christ, you guys, it cleanses us. He absorbed all of our sin and iniquity in his body, and he died because of our sins, because of our iniquity. When we place our faith in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, God applies that cleansing agent to our souls. And God can now have fellowship with us because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Have you come to a point in your life where you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone? All of us have said things that we shouldn't say. All of us have done things that we shouldn't have done. Every sin that has ever been committed on this planet, from the worst to the least, has been placed upon Christ, and he has absorbed that into himself. But because he's God, he can take it. And because he's God, he rose from the dead to prove that he's more powerful than sin, death, and Satan. That's what Matt will talk about next week. But have you placed your faith in Christ and the work that he did for you on the cross? He died for you. He died for me. He died for everyone. That's why we call this coming Friday Good Friday. Let's pray.
Father, I pray right now for people who are watching this talk. We've all said things that we shouldn't have said. We've all done things that we shouldn't have done. We all feel a sense of guilt and shame because of those things, those iniquities. But you have, because of your love, your mercy, your grace, your justice, you sent your one and only Son to die on that cross for our sins. I pray, Father, that people that are listening to uh, me right now, they just take a moment and they just say, yes, I believe that. Or for people who have never taken this step, that right now they would just look at you and they would just say, God, I know, I know I'm a sinner. I know everybody else knows it. And right now, I don't understand everything about Christianity. I don't understand everything about what you might have in my life. But right now, I know that Christ died for me, and I'm placing my faith in what he did on that cross for me. We thank you, Father, for the gift, the gift of eternal life. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be able to be the kind of people who would share this news this good news, this gospel about the Messiah with as many people as we know. We pray this in Christ's name for the sake of his reputation. All God's people said.